Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. Great to see you guys here. So glad that you've joined us today. To everybody joining us online, hope you're doing great. So happy that you've joined us. Um, So I uh, will just let you know that uh, our worship time was just a little abbreviated here at the beginning of our service because, as I think you know, most of you, we're going to close our time today with communion, have an extended time of worship then. Um, Between now and then, I'm going to teach for a little while, okay? So um, this past August, while on my study intensive, I visited the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. Uh, The most Famous part of this museum is its collection of paintings by the Dutch masters. And the most famous painting from the Dutch golden age of painting is Rembrandt's masterpiece, The Night Watch. Um, Rembrandt painted The Night Watch in 1642, and it is magnificent. It's hard for you to get a sense of the scale of this painting but it's probably best to say that it's hugely magnificent because Rembrandt designed this painting to be 14 and a half feet wide by 12 feet high, and it dominates the hall, the magnificent hall that celebrates the Dutch masters, and um, it's, it's, it's just stunning. Well, uh, much to my surprise as I read the placard beside the painting, Uh, I learned that when Rembrandt painted the Night Watch in 1642 that it actually was larger than it now is. He painted this painting to fit on a particular wall in a particular place, the name of which I can't pronounce, a banquet hall, where it, it hung for a number of years. But in 1715, the Night Watch was moved from where it was originally placed to uh, the town hall, which is now the, the palace on uh, Dam Square. Yes, the uh, square around which Amsterdam is built is called Dam Square. But anyway, uh, the painting turned out to be too large for the wall in the town hall. And so some brilliant folks, the folks moving this painting, decided that they would cut off three of the edges in order to fit the masterpiece, the night watch, on the wall that they wanted to place it on. And so it so happened that when I was there, there had been a scientific recreation uh, where they attempted to... um, demonstrate what they thought Rembrandt had actually intended. And through some brilliant scientific process, they added what they thought Rembrandt's original design was. And I actually, and they only displayed it for three months, and I happened to be there when they were displaying what what they believed Rembrandt had actually wanted in the beginning. And uh, you learn that when somebody cut the edges off the night watch, 
that it resulted in the loss of at least two characters on one side, uh, the top of an arch, uh, the balustrade, the edge of a step, and no one has ever found the missing portions of Rembrandt's masterpiece. Now, imagine the thought process of these, forgive me, idiots who decided to damage Rembrandt's masterpiece in order to fit it on the wall they wanted to hang it on. You'd think that perhaps they could have found a wall to fit the painting on rather than cut the painting to fit it on the wall that they wanted to hang it on, right? I mean, just think about this just from an economic sense. The Night Watch, even in its damaged condition today, has a value of over $500 million. So if you were able to buy the painting, it would make more sense for you to tear your house down rebuild your house to have a wall to display the painting and you'd still have hundreds of millions of dollars of value left over. In fact, I suspect that you could tear down the palace on Dam Square in Amsterdam and rebuild the palace in order to get the right wall to hang this painting on and you still would have made a wise economic decision. See, you just have to think that there's something wrong with somebody who's saying, you know, I'm just going to cut off a few feet here and there so I can fit this painting into the reality that I want it to be displayed in. Now, here's a very simple statement that I want to make and I want to expand on at some length in today's teaching. When it comes to how God designed the world, don't mess with his masterpiece. So last week, we launched the third trimester here at TLCC with a new teaching series called Ancient Wisdom, Learn the Secrets to a Fulfilling Life. And this teaching is based on the wisdom of Solomon and other wise and anointed sages found in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. A proverb, at least in Scripture, broadly speaking, is a short, pithy statement that describes some way that God made the world to work. The Proverbs in uh, Proverbs don't actually begin until the 10th chapter of Proverbs. The first nine chapters are written as an invitation to wisdom and an invitation to understand that wise people understand that everything in the world was made to work best when it works within God's design. One of the ways that this invitation to wisdom is offered in the first nine chapters of Proverbs before we actually get to the actual Proverbs is through the personification of wisdom in a woman who is called Lady Wisdom. She's called by different names, but that's, I I think, the way that she's most often referred to by scholars. Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom is introduced in Proverbs Uh, chapter 1 like this. Out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out. At the city gate, she makes her speech. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways, she asks. How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Repent at my rebuke. Then I will pour out my thoughts to you I will make known to you my teachings. And then 
She reappears again in Proverbs chapter 8 and chapter 9. And here's part of what she says in Proverbs 8. I love those who love me, and those who seek me find me. This is Lady Wisdom speaking. With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasuries full. She goes on and says a lot of beautiful words like that, inviting us to establish an intimate relationship with wisdom. But I'm most fascinated with the fact, and I think this is actually the most important part of this, that she then introduces herself as a companion of God when he created the universe. And in so doing, she becomes this personification of wisdom through whom he designed and created the world and humanity. Some scholars say that she not only represents God's wisdom, but God himself. It's an interesting thing to study. Nevertheless, She calls herself the architect, or some translations say master craftsman, or others use the word artisan, who was at God's side and through whom he designed and created the world. God painted the world, if you please, with and through wisdom. It is his masterpiece. Now here's how Lady Wisdom says it in part. Proverbs 8.22, the Lord formed me from the beginning before he created anything else. Hear that again. It's fascinating. Lady Wisdom said that the Lord formed me, wisdom, before he created anything else. I was born, she says, before he had made the earth. I was there when he established the heavens when he drew the horizon on the oceans. I was there when he set the clouds above, when he established springs deep in the earth. I was there when he set the limits of the seas so they would not spread beyond their boundaries. And when he marked off the earth's foundations, I was the architect at his side. Again, another translation says, I was the master craftsman at his side. Another translation said, I was the artisan at his side. I was his constant delight, rejoicing always in his presence. And how happy I was with the world he created. How I rejoiced with the human family. I can't help but find myself but moved by this description of wisdom as the artisan or master craftsman or architect that God created the masterpiece of creation through. Trimper Longman III in his uh, marvelous commentary on Proverbs writes, the major point of these verses seem to be that creation and wisdom are inextricably bound. I want you to see the connection again. Creation and wisdom are inextricably bound. Thus, if one wants to know how the world works, and thus to successfully navigate life, one had better know this woman, which is the Lord's wisdom and the Lord himself. So, Lady Wisdom is essentially saying, 
I can tell you how God designed the world to work. I can tell you what he intended, what he wanted it to look like, how he wanted it to operate. And if you have a relationship with me, she says, you can live life the way it was meant to be lived. And I like as she says this, that she describes herself as being happy at God's side as he created the world. You have to remember that when God created the world, he created it with immense joy. At the end of every day, he's saying it is good. When he created humanity, he said it it is very good. Uh, At one point in 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 the Old Testament, God is described at rejoicing in creation as the sons of God, presumably the angels, shouted with joy. And wisdom said, I was there as he created the world. And I was so happy with what God made. And the most important thing is God was very happy with what he made. He was happy with what he painted. He knew what he wanted it to look like, and he was pleased with it. I was the architect at his side. Again, Proverbs 8.30. I was his constant delight, rejoicing always in his presence, and how happy I was with the world he created, how I rejoiced with the human family. And so, my children, listen to me, for all who follow me, my ways are joyful. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Don't ignore it. Joyful are those who listen to me, for whoever finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. So you have to get this picture. God, through the artistry of wisdom, designs and creates this masterpiece of the world. But sadly, since the very beginning, human beings have been trying to find ways to fit this masterpiece into their world rather than designing their world around the masterpiece. And see, this is called foolishness. You can understand why God would ask a human being who questions him and his ways, hard questions in response. There's this famous passage from Job, where Job, one could say understandably, in a way that's only human, is throwing questions at God. Job is not very happy with the way God runs his world at this point. But God responds by saying to Job, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. God sarcastically says, who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? See, wisdom says, I was there. And if we listen to wisdom, wisdom is constantly saying that we need to get ourselves located in the way God designed the world. That God invites us even now to live our lives in a good world, made by a good God, a happy God, that he made for for his pleasure and our good. And this is why we must always come back to the foundational question about life, which is this. How did God design the world? And I think that any of us would have to say that the world we live in right now is a world that has been deconstructed by humanity 
in a way that has done damage to the masterpiece where what we're looking at isn't what God designed in the beginning. This is why, for instance, the Genesis narrative is so important. I'll just use this as an illustration. I constantly go back to the first three chapters of Genesis because everything in the Bible, everything in the universe is a response to the first three chapters of Genesis. Because it's in the first three chapter Genesis, which isn't supposed to be a science manual, it's not, uh, it's not a, a, a technical uh, uh, guide to the processes God used to create the world. It's a narrative, it's a story where God tells us things about what he wanted when he made the world. We, we, he's wanting us to get kind of the bigger picture and get a sense of how he designed things. God says, through this artisan named Wisdom, this is what I painted. Look at what I made. It's good. So you, you get all these ideas. I just mentioned a couple of them in Genesis. I, I'm trying to make a, 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 a larger point that in order to live the way you were meant to be lived, you have to go back to God's design. You have to say, what did God make? What did he intend? What did he want? So you get ideas like, for instance, the very, very beginning of the beginning, God creating human beings in his image, male and female. Genesis 127, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. If we begin to tear away at a fundamentally important part of God's design for humanity, we find ourselves doing damage to what God wanted in the beginning. I'm going to pick this subject up in November, by the way, in the series we're going to do on wisdom and relationships. Or let's talk about the idea of purpose, where God uh, clearly, in order for us to understand how our lives were designed, he called us to join him in his work. Um, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule it. Or Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. If you want to have a sense of purpose in your life, you have to figure out how you are involved in working and caring for what God works and cares for. It's just, this is how God designed the world to work. Or when you look at the importance of relationships, Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. Or you look at uh, the institution of marriage, which was established in the first three chapters of Genesis, and the foundational and fundamental building block of the family. Genesis 2.24, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were living life the way God designed it to be lived. Uh, when Jesus, let's say, for instance, talked about marriage, as an example, what was his point of reference for marriage? He went back to the beginning. He quoted this passage, Matthew 19, 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I'm trying to make a large point here, not get into the specificity of that text, which I could, and, and again, I intend to here in coming months. I'm trying to come to the larger point that if you want to understand how a thing is supposed to work, you have to ask the question, how did God design it? What's it supposed to look like? 
And are we building our lives in a way that fits that? Or are we deconstructing God's design in order to make it fit our culture, our ideas of how things should be? You have to hear God saying this. So you have to just hear God saying, where were you? when I made the foundations of the earth. Ah, nah, you just tear off a little here, tear off a little there, and just a little piece over here, and we're gonna make this thing work the way we think it should work because we're so cotton-picking smart. You just look at, you know, some of the impact of decisions that do damage to God's design in the last 10 or 20 years and in our culture. And again, I don't really even tend to get into some of that right now, but, but to make the larger point. But you just think, who do we think we are? God designs this world and says, Whoo, look at this. And here we are take this part off and take that part off and change this over here. And well, anyway, and it's in the Genesis narrative where we learn that humanity was given free will as to whether or not to agree to live life the way God designed it and to choose between whether or not we're going to do life our way or do life God's way. And of course, the first human beings chose their own way and God's masterpiece was damaged. But the good news, of course, is that Jesus came to repair the damage and to give us another opportunity to live life God's way. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Through Jesus, we get another shot, guys. We have the opportunity to be created anew so that we can fully be the masterpiece he made us to be. Now, here's the deal. I've already said it. When we don't live according to God's design, we don't, when we don't do the good he planned long ago, we have something less than what God planned for our lives. So this is what wisdom says. And see, before you get into the Proverbs in chapter 10 through 31, this is the way Proverbs is set up. I hope you don't find it boring, but this is the way it's set up. It's, it's Lady Wisdom saying, this is how life works. So when you, when you get into the Proverbs, it talks about things like how business works and how we're supposed to think about and use money and how to have a healthy emotional life and how to care for the poor and how to make good decisions and how to plan for the future and how to serve your spouse and how to raise your kids and all of that stuff. You're supposed to think about it with this bigger idea in mind. We start with the bigger picture. And we have to decide at some point, we want to do things God's way or we, we want to, you know, we're smarter than he is, and we're going we're gonna to do it another way. We have to figure that out. Each of us have to make that decision, and then it gets applied to every area of our lives. Uh, C.S. Lewis, 
in his brilliance said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. And the fact is, God is set things up to say that to you if that's what you want. So, I can see some of you are trying to get your mind around that statement. There are two types of people. There are people who say, thy will be done. And there are people to whom God says, thy will be done. Have it your way. Tear a little off here, tear a little off there. Just kind of take my world and make it fit into your world. If that's what you want, God says, you can have that. I set it up that way. You can make that decision. Or you can live the masterpiece. So let me spend the rest of my time today offering three choices to live a masterpiece. Everybody okay? All right. Three choices to live a masterpiece. First, choose ultimate wisdom over penultimate wisdom. Um, Last week I defined what I'm calling ultimate wisdom like this. Ultimate wisdom is understanding how God designed the world to work. I tried to make the point that it's possible for someone to have wisdom about a thing, but not to have wisdom as it's described in Scripture. Let's just say, for instance, Bill Gates has wisdom. Wisdom is often defined as how understanding how, how something is meant to work, has wisdom about how to, uh, about how to build a personal computer, wisdom about uh, how to build a company, wisdom about how to build a charity. But does that mean at the end of the day that he has w- what I'm calling ultimate wisdom? That, that his life is being lived according to how God designed life to be lived. I don't know the answer to that. Only eternity will judge that. I'm just, I'm just saying that I think it's, I know it's possible to have wisdom about a thing, but, but not have ultimate wisdom where your life is being lived within the masterpiece as the masterpiece God designed and created. Um, and so, so I tried to make that point last week. Let, let, let me make the point a little differently this week, which is to say, don't settle for penultimate wisdom when you can have ultimate wisdom. Um, I, I was actually reading something a few weeks ago and I saw someone use the word penultimate as something less than ultimate. And I thought the editor of the book had somehow let that pass. And then I looked it up and discovered I don't always use the word penultimate wrong. I'm sure all of you know this, uh, but, but in fact, I'd been using it wrong for many years. I always thought penultimate was beyond ultimate. But in fact, penultimate is less than ultimate. The word literally means second. Or, or next to, and, 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 and technically it means next to last. I'm using it a little different uh, today, but, 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 uh, so the penultimate is not beyond the ultimate. It's, it's the thing next to ultimate. Uh, it's not the zenith or zenith. It's second to zenith. And, and, and I, I think here, here's why I, I'm saying this. I think that it's uh, the inclination of many of us, and especially probably pastors, preachers, people studying Scripture and, and teaching about it, tend to want to frame everything in terms of right and wrong. 
Sometimes, though, I think it's better to frame the issues of life, particularly controversial and difficult issues, in terms of ultimate good or penultimate good. In other words, is this the absolute best or is this something less than? And penultimate means, it means it's, it's, it's second. It's, it's, be, it's not ultimate. It's less than ultimate. So is this best or is it second best? Or, or is this more and better or is this less than and worse? So when you look at Rembrandt's masterpiece as it's been now displayed since 1715, even though it was damaged, it's still glorious. It's just not what Rembrandt designed. And I think all of us would have to say, if you appreciate art at all, and I'm learning to more and more as the years go on, you have to say, it seems that in order for us to have the absolute best possible case, we should have what the artist actually designed. And I think that, 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 that we need to think about life in that way. I, I think that we need to always be asking the question, what do we want? Do, do, do we want something that's best or something less than best? And, and, and sometimes we need to come to discussions of right and wrong. But, but, but for now, let's just frame it in terms of what did God actually want with the assumption that that's what's actually best for us? And that's what we teach our kids. And that's how we think about life. It's not, you know, when I was, when I was being raised, I probably shouldn't even say this. It was, it was, you, 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 it was pretty frequent to hear someone say, if you do that, you're going to hell. Right? And, and, and there might actually be truth to that. Uh, you know what? Forget that. I don't even know that I want to say that. I haven't thought about that. But what I know is I would prefer to say, this isn't how God designed your best life. God created the world the way he made it, and he's dancing around the universe saying, this is good. And wisdom is at his side, dancing and singing and saying, look what God did. And the sons of God are shouting for joy. And God says, this is how I made the world. Look at how I designed things. Come on and live this way. See, that's the invitation. And then human beings come along and say, ah, I think, I think it'd be better if we, if, if God were really smart, God would have done it like this. I mean, essentially, this is what we're saying. Rip. Rip. And I'm just saying, why would you want penultimate when you can have ultimate? What? The most important verse in Proverbs, I taught about it last week, but it's so central to Proverbs. Again, before we get to Proverbs, we've got to talk about this bigger idea. The, the most important verse in Proverbs is Proverbs 1-7. It's, it's said in a variety of ways throughout Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9-10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom and knowledge are two words almost synonymous in this particular context in the Hebrew language. Deep grasping and understanding of a thing. See, to fear the Lord is to acknowledge Him as God. God the designer and creator and purposer, purposer of everything in the universe and everything in our lives. 
It is to live according to the Latin phrase common in theology, coram deo. Coram deo means before the face of God or under the authority of God. What does it look like to live before the face of God? So when we're thinking about marriage and we're thinking about business and we're thinking about raising our kids and we're thinking about how to handle and deal with finances, what does it look like to live with this sense that we're doing it before the face of God, before the artist who wanted it to be done a certain way? Everything under his authority. Ellen Davis, the Old Testament professor, wrote that wisdom is living in the world in such a way that God and God's intentions for the world are acknowledged in all we do. The fruit of wisdom, a well-ordered life and a peaceful mind results not from a high IQ, but from a disposition of the heart that the sages, wisdom teachers of Israel, most often called the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is not about our knees knocking, although maybe our knees should sometimes. But that's not really the point. It's living before the face of God. It's acknowledging God as God in all we do. Here's a glimpse of the importance of this and its benefits in Proverbs. You ready? Proverbs 2, 5 through 6. You will understand the fear of the Lord, Lady Wisdom says, and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs eight thirteen. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs ten twenty seven. The fear of the Lord adds length to life. All the social science surveys, by the way, actually show that if you live according to Proverbs, if you'll do life that way, in fact, there's a probability of living a longer life. Maybe I'll get into that in the coming weeks. Proverbs 14, 26, whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Proverbs 15, 16, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Proverbs 16, 6, the through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rest content, untouched by trouble. Proverbs 31.30, speaking about this glorious woman. In Proverbs 31, businesswoman, mother, uh, wife, uh, part of what is said is charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So here's an example of how you'd apply this when you look at the Proverbs. Let's just say that you're talking about planning. This is pretty simple, but let's say that we're talking about planning. Proverbs is, has a lot to say about how we should plan. Celebrates planning. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. It's Proverbs that tells us that we need to seek wise counsel from wise people. Proverbs 15.22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. But the bigger picture is that we're supposed to plan in the fear of the Lord. What does that look like? Proverbs 16.1, to humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. The Lord works out everything to its proper end. And so somebody who's living according to God's design when they're thinking about planning says, okay, wisdom says that I should plan. But wisdom and I should seek 
counsel. But wisdom also says I should plan while saying, God, test my motives and make sure that I want the right thing for the right reason. Lord, give me wisdom. Help me, give me an understanding beyond my human understanding to help me make these plans. Lord, I submit these plans to you. You're God. If you want something different than what I, I've done my best to plan, but if you want something different than what I've planned, here, Lord, I offer it up to you. I know that you love me. I know you've got bigger things going on than, than, than what I understand. I want to fit in your plans rather than fit you into mine. So, so you understand you plan in the fear of the Lord. You do it before the face of God. And we could apply that principle to every proverb in Proverbs. All right, here's the second choice to live a masterpiece. It's to choose lady wisdom over a woman named Folly. So, lady wisdom shows up. I've actually never heard anybody preach about lady wisdom in my life. I, I... I, uh, I, I accepted the challenge and, and am doing the best that I can with it. But um, uh, so Lady Wisdom gets introduced, first nine chapters, she shows up in chapter one and, and, and then she dominates chapters eight and nine. But the end of nine, right before the actual proverb start in Proverbs, this other woman shows up and her name is Folly, not Molly. Folly. And here's what it says, Proverbs 9, 13. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all those who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious, but little do they know that the dead are there and that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. So who is folly? Trimper Longman writes, she is best understood as a metaphor for all the false gods and goddesses that provided such a tremendous illicit attraction to the Israelites. In the same way that personification gives wisdom a theological dimension, so also folly is more than simply a mistaken way to act or speak They represent, Lady Wisdom and this woman named Folly, represent diametrically opposed relationships with the divine and alternative world views. So to to make it simple, and I've done quite a bit of reading on this, trying to get my arms around it, and I I hope I can just make it simple. Essentially, there are two world systems. There are two ways of approaching life. It can actually be connected to the world of spirit, good and evil, the world that we can't see, but it gets manifest in our dimension of life as, as we see it as essentially either acknowledging God as God and doing things his way or deciding to live in some other way. It's good and evil. It's wisdom and folly. And folly will tempt us each in our own way with something illicit something stolen, something that is alluring and attractive and delicious in the moment, but that ultimately leads not to life, but to death. It's something that looks good. Folly is, 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 is postured in this text as, a, as, as an attractive woman calling to the simple-minded. 
What, what does that look like for us? Well, it could be a relationship with a literal person. It could be cutting corners in business. It could be not honoring God with our finances. It could be flirtation with an alternative worldview that, uh, that opposes the teachings of Scripture. It could be uh, the, uh, giving in to the temptation uh, that our culture offers us to tear away at God's designs and buy in and give up the battle and just say, okay, I guess that we're, this is how things are going to be. But the secret to saying no to folly is to say yes to lady wisdom. wish I had more time just to deal with this. But the secret... Always, guys, the secret to saying no to the negative thing is to say a resounding yes to the positive thing. And the way that we say no to this woman named Folly is to love wisdom. It's to be in relationship with wisdom. It's to pursue wisdom. Um, uh, in fact, Lady Wisdom lets us know that she wants to be sought for, but she's easy to find. Proverbs 8, 17, I love those who love me and those who seek me, find me. She says, I want you to come after me, but I want you to find me. It reminds me of me and Sharon's relationship in the early months. You're going to have to chase me, she said, essentially, without saying that. And I did, but the other thing that's really wonderful, she wanted me to catch her. So this is a good thing. It's worked out. Lady Wisdom is saying, I want you to chase me, but here I am. If you chase me, you'll find me. See, we never just say no to something. We're saying yes to something better. In fact, it's, it's like, to, 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 again, I'm trying to make a larger point, but here's an example from Proverbs that, that, that part of how uh, we are helped to not stray in our marriage is to invest or say yes to the relationship with our spouse. It's not just saying no to the thing we shouldn't do. More than that, it's saying yes. So, so here's a pretty graphic, uh, almost erotic passage from Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5, the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. And, 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 and then wisdom counsels the young man who's listening. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Then it gets really graphic. I won't read it, but it says, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why my son be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman for your ways? are in full view of the Lord. This is all being done before the face of God, and he examines all your paths. So he's not just saying, say no to what you shouldn't have. He's saying, pursue what you do have. Go after it. Appreciate it. Be intoxicated with the love of your wife, or we could uh, apply it to, to, to either spouse. Do you, do you get the larger point? The way we say no to folly is, is not to focus on folly, it is to say yes to God. One other thing along those lines, uh, Augustine, in, in something I think is brilliant, and I have to decide whether I'll say this in second service or not. Um, Augustine, the great philosopher, pastor, one of the great thinkers in all of Western civilization, when he came to the point of his conversion, the, kind of the final thing that he knew he had to give up was his, his, he, he, he had uh, numbers of relationships with women. And he knew that for him, 
that, that he would be called to chastity. Uh, and uh, he's struggling with this mightily. But all of a sudden, at his moment of conversion, he gets a picture of chastity in his mind as, a, as, as an attractive woman. In fact, David Brooks writes about it in The Road to Character, and he used the, uses the word a fecund woman. Fecund means, among other things, voluptuous. I'm, I hope I'm not embarrassing anyone other than Sharon here today. <laughs> but understand, he's, he's struggling to say no to the beautiful women he's been with and desires. And in order to say no to them, he gets a picture of chastity in his mind as a woman more beautiful than the women he's saying no to. The point is that in order to say no, we have to see the attractiveness, the beauty, the masterpiece of God's design and plan as to whatever issue we're dealing with in our life. We're say, when we say yes to lady wisdom, we're saying yes to something more beautiful than all the illicit attractions of folly, all the things that would take us away from God's way. We're not just saying, no, 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 no. We're saying, I understand that if I live life God's way, life's going to be better. I understand this is the way God designed things. I understand that God, through this artisan named Wisdom, painted the world to be viewed in such a way, and I don't want anything less than that. We're attracted to the beauty of Wisdom. And finally, we choose Jesus over everything. And I've run out of time so I'll just be brief about this. Again, this is one of these, I kind of view last week's message and this week's message is kind of introductory to this trimester. I hope to get into this a little bit more, but there's this amazing, amazing thread in the New Testament about Jesus becoming the ultimate personification of wisdom. Jesus becomes Lady Wisdom. Um, in fact, he described, it, 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 there, there's that famous passage where Jesus is being uh, accused by the religious leaders of having too much fun. He was enjoying eating and drinking, whereas John the Baptist uh, didn't, uh, uh, Matthew 11, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, as a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus says, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. He's very clearly pointing back to Lady Wisdom, and he's saying, Lady Wisdom is being proved right by the way I'm conducting my life. In other words, I know how things are supposed to be, and I'm living accordingly. You can criticize me if you want to, but I'm here enjoying dinner with my friends, and uh, Lady Wisdom is being proven right by what I'm doing. It's a complicated kind of subject, but it's fascinating. But Jesus becomes a personification of wisdom, and part of what happens, we're taught in Scripture, is that when we receive Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells our lives, we actually receive the spirit of wisdom. And, and this is, as with everything else with the gospel, this isn't self-help stuff. When you read the Proverbs, it's not just like, okay, now I need to understand I need to do this, this, and this, and this. Yes, we do understand we need to do this, this, and this, but we need to understand that through Jesus, the Holy Spirit now is going to help us do this, this, and this in a way we couldn't do if we weren't being helped. So Jesus, 
1 Corinthians 1.20 says, has become for us wisdom from God. Apostle Paul prays in Colossians 1.9 that God would fill us with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. You are not on your own in this quest for wisdom. If you will focus on your relationship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit will help you want the right things. And the Holy Spirit will help you live the right way.